Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken. In this, our second season of How to Choose, we're exploring the topic of decisions at work. We're joined by a range of guests who speak about decision-making in the context of their work. Now, Tess, if I asked you what were some of the most challenging decisions that most of us have to make in our lives, what would make the top of your list? Look, the things that I've agonized the most over would probably be what to study at university, when and if to have a child, uh, and when to buy a house. Yeah, they're common big ones, aren't they? Well, today we're going to hear from someone who is an expert at the third of those decisions, which is when and where to buy property. Uh, So today I chatted with Lachlan Vidler, who is the founder and owner of Atlas Property Group. So shall we hear what he has to say? I'm, I'm all ears, Ken. I need lots of advice in this area. So our guest today is someone I really admire. Lachlan Vidler is the co-founder, along with his partner, Tori Coles, uh, and also the director of Atlas Property Group, a property investment company based in Sydney. And the company has been a finalist in multiple categories for the Real Estate Business Awards in 2022. So welcome to How to Choose, Lachlan. Thanks for having me, Ken. Now, Lachlan, you haven't always worked in property investment. So was this someone you something you had always wanted to do? And how did you decide it was the right time to start up Atlas Property Group? Uh, you, you are absolutely correct. It's not something that I've always done. Uh, I, I have done a few other things before this. And I think for me, the decision to go out and, and start my own company and, and to do it in this field, it probably came down to two really big things. The first one was doing something that I'm interested in. And the second thing was making active, tangible steps towards uh, the future that I wanted to have for myself. Excellent. So that sounds like you probably had some pretty clear goals then of what you thought the future should look like. Yeah, definitely. For me, the, the, the really big things were if I was going to be working, which uh, unfortunately most of us have to do, I wanted to be really enjoying what I was doing. And I wanted to be able to, I guess, feel that fulfillment and feel like I was making a difference in the lives of the people around me or the clients around me or whatever it was. And then secondly, I wanted to be in a position where I guess I could be in charge of the direction of it. And I don't say that from a selfish point of view. I say it from the point of view that I felt like I had the skills to do it. But as everybody knows in a job, you don't just walk in and be the boss from day one. So I decided to flip that on its head and and take the active steps towards making that future that I wanted. And that, as I understand it, involved you doing some studies prior to taking up the work or quite a bit of study, didn't you? Yeah, so I, I've I've done a master's degree in finance from the University of New South Wales. I've studied property investment and develop at the master's level as well through university or it's now Western Sydney University. It's, and then obviously, I mean, as everybody knows, it's not what you know necessarily. It's also then what have you done with it? How do you implement it? And the way that I looked at it was I needed to have a good base. I mean, you wouldn't go to a lawyer that didn't have a law degree, for example. Yeah. Um, so I needed to formalize that knowledge, uh, but then that practical side. I mean, I'd been an investor myself. I'd help friends and family also invest in property. I had this educational knowledge and background, and then it was about bringing all those things together to then start a business. Yeah, fantastic. And you've touched on a few things just there that we've certainly talked about last season on how to choose, and that is uh, having clarity of goals, having goals that align with your values. And you've talked a bit about Uh, some of your values there, but then also just doing the practical steps and the hard work of understanding, well, understanding first, what's the pathway to get to the goals, but then having the perseverance to push through and do the hard work to get there. Absolutely. I mean, goal setting is one thing, or I guess 
sorry, maybe coming back from goal setting, a goal is is whatever it is, whether it's to get up early the next day or whether it's to build a billion dollar business, a goal is a goal, but there are steps that have to be implemented along that route, right? And if, and if the goal is literally wake up early the next day, well, then maybe it's you iron your clothes the night before, you make your lunch the night before, you do all those things, you set your alarm, simple, right? Building, building a billion dollar business is obviously a bit different, but it follows the same idea. You can't just get to the end end place. You, you have to start and you have to set those milestones or that pathway out almost like mini goals so that you can put yourself in the best place for success in whatever it is you're trying to do. I've got a question for you. And I've just been listening to uh, an excellent audio book called The Scout Mindset by Julia Galef. Uh, and Galef talks about very much just having a commitment to understanding reality is, is really the premise of the book. And she talks about how they had surveyed a whole bunch of people who were living, I think, in the Silicon Valley area where oh, everyone who lives there wants to do a startup. And the survey question was, what do you think your likelihood is of succeeding? She said it was really interesting that the vast majority had a very high confidence level that they would succeed. And yet she said, when you look at, at people who've been extremely successful, their expectations of success were much more modest. And it just reflected the fact that they knew the reality of the challenges of getting a business to succeed. And her premise is really, you know, just being optimistic isn't always, you know, super helpful. Like you obviously have to have some optimism, but you've got to be grounded in reality. Is that something you can relate to a bit as well in terms of of Atlas? I think definitely. And you kind of touch on something there that I'm a big advocate of. I guess it's a principle or it's a a theory, or actually, it's an effect. Is the is the technical word? And it's the Dunning Kruger effect, and that's the, yes. the 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 less you know about a topic, the more you think you know about a topic. Yes. And I think that you, the story you were just telling about that the audio book and, and and the survey results probably is a great example of that because a lot of those people probably don't actually realize the things they're going to have to go through in building their startup into this big success, but. Conversely, most successful startup founders have had multiple failed ventures beforehand. So I think tapping into that idea of Dunning-Kruger is that they, because they'd had those failures, they knew what was going to be on that pathway for them so that their expectations were a little bit more moderated. I guess how it <laughs> relates to Atlas was, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know when we first started, I had these lofty goals. I was I was actually talking to somebody today and talking about how when, when I first started the business, I thought that if I worked hard enough, uh, I could beat time, basically. Like I could have five years of success in one year if I worked hard enough. And now in hindsight, seeing what you know the successes we've had and the failures we've had, I realized that while to an extent that's true, there's a big bit that isn't true out of that. So uh, I think that uh, I'm just fortunate in the fact none of the failures have been so significant that they've really hurt us or penalized us, but it's been amazing learning. And and I would be a lot more moderated now if I had my time again. Fascinating. And I think really helpful for listeners as well, uh, who maybe are thinking about similar goals relating to to starting up a business or some sort of venture. Now, listen, I've got a question for you that, that I uh, think you're going to have an interesting answer to. I don't know a lot about property investment, but I do understand understand the importance of having accurate information to support investment decisions. Can you talk a bit about that? And what would you say to people who claim to base their investment decisions on an intuition or a hunch? Do you ever come across that when you're talking with prospective clients or even colleagues who just say, look, I've got a really strong feeling about this, but maybe can't point to any particular data that backs up that feeling? Uh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I think what I find is, and again, it probably almost relates into that whole Dunning-Kruger idea is that less people know about something, the more they think that they do. And I see it all the time with, I guess, through my lens being property investing, the common one being that people think that the suburb they live in is the best place ever and that they should invest there when the reality is, is that it may be a very good suburb, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a great investment where it's about return. There's a lot of other things that come into it. But to me, the importance of having data to support, I guess, whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a decision, whether it's a consideration, uh, I think it's vital because ultimately data is fact and you can you can obviously manipulate data to come to certain conclusions or to show certain things. But if you're viewing it through the lens that you're meant to view it, data represents fact. Interpretation is everything. And it's one thing to be able to get the data. I mean, somebody could hypothetically go and get all the same data I do. It will cost them tens of thousands of dollars, but they can go do it. But I think like in most jobs, it's not just about the inputs, it's about the outputs and the interpretation. And, and that's where I think most people in whatever industry fall down is, can they interpret the results as well as somebody who is a leader in their field? Look, you could apply the same thing to somebody who gets onto you know, WebMD, you know, once they, when they <laughs> trying to self-diagnose their conditions, um, and we hear that all the time, you know, <laughs> the idea of the home expert. It's interesting too, and I, I, I'm sort of digressing here, but I just recall uh, the optimism when the internet first came out, and I'm old enough to remember that, the idea that, you know, we would become a lot, a lot smarter, a lot better informed because of this free access to uh, unlimited amount of data. But the the challenge is how do you sort through the data and it's having the knowledge to understand what to do with all the information that's out there. I Definitely. And I think I would I would say that everybody is probably smarter and better off and has and because of the access that we have. But like you were just saying, the problem is, is that there's now so much noise and it's about being able to cut yeah. through the noise. It's about being able to use it effectively. And I think, unfortunately, in, in so many cases, and I love, I love the WebMD example, People think that they become an armchair expert or a five-minute expert because they read a you know a Wikipedia article or a Harvard Business Review article, and it's the first time they've read it, but they now think they're an authority. And I mean, I think we've all seen Facebook warriors and and people like yeah. that that you know <laughs> do their thing. But I guess there's a, there's a pro and con to everything, right? We've we've got more access, but now we've got you know arguably more issues now because of it. Mm. So. Yeah, well, there's more information and more misinformation, uh, as was in there. Now, I guess another part of this question in terms of decision-making, or another part of the equation, I should say, is the element of emotions. And uh, it's something we've talked about before, I know, that benefit in terms of the business service you offer is being able to be uh, unemotional about some of the decisions. Do you want to talk a bit about that and just even how you personally uh, manage it when you find uh, a property that you're particularly excited about? How do you manage the potential negative impact of emotions when you're making decisions in a perhaps a, an auction context or something like that? I think the biggest thing that I've found with emotions is people just don't acknowledge them. And it's when they don't acknowledge them and they try to think like, oh, I can I can get through it or uh, I don't have them or, or whatever it is. That's the biggest problem for me. I mean, I have emotions every day. I get frustrated and age and I get frustrated at my team. I get happy with my team. I, You know, we all have these emotions and I think it's just being able to sit back and recognize them and understand why they're there. That's the first and, and biggest key because- if you do that, 
you're now sort of understanding how your decision-making process is working because you're either, I guess in my context, you're trying everything you can do to have a property fit what you want it to do. Or if you're unhappy in that moment, you're trying to find any reason why you don't like, could be equally unjustified. So I think with with emotions, it's just, you need to recognize it and you need to understand it. And then secondly, you then need to be able to find a way to support, because most of the time, I guess we're talking about a binary decision, a yes or a no, or like a two-directional type thing. Having logic and reason and I guess data or whatever it might be to uh, to validate or prove one side, but then disprove the other one and and being able to have the data to support both sides. So that way, you know, you're making a factual and informed choice of direction or choice in your decision-making. And I think time's also good where you can, if you can step away for five minutes, that can be a can be a life changer. If you can step away for a day or an hour or a week, you know that also can help to soothe whatever issues you might have going on with your uh, decision making process. Excellent. It's interesting thing you talk about there that looking for data that will also disprove and and something you know a common bias that most of us struggle with is that confirmation bias. You know we we have an idea in mind and and if it's a property, I'm sure once you're enthused and excited, you're then really just latching on to that data that supports supports the conclusion that you've reached. So is that something you're, I can see you're nodding. Uh, I, I think you're probably very aware of that as well. So is that something you're deliberately looking for those disproving things as well, that the data that challenges your assumptions? All the time. And I think I had two thoughts in what you're saying. That was why I was knowing the first <laughs> one. When you get to the 11th hour and we could have spent five, six, seven hours analyzing one property. And when we get to that 11th hour, we're about to go you know, either a yes or a no for a client. And we find out one piece of information that it could effectively be a deal breaker. And then suddenly we're still trying to make the property work. When really we need to just go, all right, unfortunately, that's, you know, that's five, six hours down the drain. But, you know, you have that confirmation bias. Sorry, that was where it came from, that confirmation bias. You're going, but everything else is okay. Can we just get it to work? And you've got to have like the fortitude or the mental authority over yourself to go, no, it's not right. I have to walk away. And I think that's the biggest one because people don't want to waste their time. Now, listen, you've given us a whole bunch of fantastic uh, free advice, to be honest. Have you got any additional final pointers for people who are maybe interested to get into the property market as just some key takeaways that people, everyone should keep in mind? Well, we could probably make a whole season about my key takeaways. <laughs> I'd love to do. I'd love to do that. <laughs> That would be great. I think I think a few things that I would say would be first one is um don't believe the media. I mean, things are either the best they've ever been or the worst they've ever been, but it's not a sexy story to say property performs as expected. So yeah. I would say first bit of advice is never really listen to the media. And that's come from somebody who does media all the time with the yeah. the domains, the real estates, all the big big people. I know exactly how journos slant stories. Um, So that's probably piece of advice number one. Piece of advice number two would be if you're going to invest in property specifically, but it probably rings true across stocks, bonds, companies, whatever it is, make sure that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you think for even a second that you're maybe not the most informed or educated or best place to make that decision, get help because Mm -hmm. it might cost you some money 
But at the end of the day, if you work with a good professional, they will make that money back for you in spades and they will reduce risk. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing is that risk reduction. That's probably the two things. We'll, we'll leave it there. Otherwise, we'll go yeah. for the whole season. <laughs> it sounds like it could be very worthwhile to get you back in the future if you'd be up for that. But listen, it's been fantastic talking to you today, Lachlan. If people are interested to, to follow you or to chat more, what's the best way to contact you and find you? Well, I would love to come back firstly. I should say that before oh, I talk fantastic. about Hayden getting contact with me. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> but Thank uh, you. Look, if anyone has an interest and they want to get in touch with us, they can head to our website, atlaspropertygroup.com.au. We're also all across social media. You know, We would love to have a chat with anybody who has an interest in property or property investing because yeah, it's, it's our bread and butter. It's what we do. It's what we love. We buy properties all around the country for people. Uh, and we would love to see more people take control of their wealth and financial future than, than unfortunately people do today. So that's what that's how you can get in touch. Excellent. And if I can do a plug for your book as well, The Military Guide to Property Investing, uh, I think is the title, which is excellent. And I, I would say, again, thank you for your time tonight, but also congratulations on the amazing uh, work that you've uh, done in establishing the company. Thanks, Ken. Thank you for the support as well. So what did you think of what Lachlan had to say? Look, a lot of the, I think we're going to be sounding like broken records at the end of the season, Ken, because what really came through was the idea of needing that interest and passion to drive your success in a business. And that really was what made him want to change careers. But then on top of that as well, he really wanted to make a difference in other people's lives. Mm. And he also wanted to uh, be in charge of the direction of his work. And that actually reminded me a lot of Dan Pink's work on motivation. Have you come across that at all? I have not. So his research on motivation in the workplace has found that you need three things to be motivated and they're autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Ah, okay. Yeah. And I think Lachlan had all three of these once he'd started that business and that's probably what helped him be so motivated. Yeah, that's right. And he talked about, he did quite a lot of preparation, didn't he? I mean, he he realized that it wasn't just about being passionate and, and being in control, but he needed the skills, that mastery. So he studied his master of finance, I think he said, and his studied property investment. I like too that he, he made the statement, it's not just what you know. And I was expecting him to say, it's who you know, <laughs> and then start talking about all these connections. But he actually said, it's not just what you know. It's what you do with that knowledge, that application of knowledge to achieve an effect. Yes. Yeah. And being very deliberate about it. I also liked uh, the points he was making about the incrementalism of building a business, Mm. you know, and kind of was talking about, it's hard to describe, you know, you get up, you make your bed, you do all these little tiny things. And it's a bit that, you know, how do you eat an elephant Mm. one bite at a time? And that, you know, creating a business, you know, does take lots of, lots of tiny little steps, particularly before you'll see any type of success. Yeah, that's right. I mentioned in the chat to a great book that I've recently come across, which is Julia Galef's The Scout Mindset. I have just finished it, Ken, based on your recommendation. (laughs) Yeah, I'm such a fan of this book. Galef, she communicates in a really fresh way, so I highly recommend it. And she promotes in it a way of thinking that is committed to discovering the reality and the truth about the world around us. Uh, She describes the common human approach to beliefs, which she calls the soldier mindset. And the soldier mindset is really, we form an opinion or a belief, and then we defend that. And when we can no longer defend it, we begrudgingly concede uh, that we might be wrong. But she advocates instead for the scout mindset. Now, a scout in this uh, analogy is someone who is creating a map. A scout goes out with their map and when they find information that indicates their map is incomplete or inaccurate, they don't reject the information. They just say, oh, okay, well, I can make a better map now. And I really like that because it has a lot to say to us about decision-making, informed decision-making. 
rather than just saying, I know this is true and I don't want to hear anything different, we are welcoming information that is new and really paying careful consideration to information that contradicts what we believe because it might help us to form a better map. It was also interesting to hear Lachlan bring up the Dunning-Kruger effect, which we talked about. I think that might have been our second episode of the last season. The kind of blind confidence that impacts someone who might be studying physiology and think, oh, look, I didn't go to a lot of lectures, but gee whiz, I'm going to pass this test. How hard can it be? So you have to tune into that episode to hear that embarrassing story. Yeah, I think the Dunning-Kruger effect, particularly for businesses, is you've just got to be very careful because optimism is actually not always your friend with something like this. Mm. And even very famous people like Jeff Bezos put his chance of succeeding with Amazon at around 30%. Mm. And Elon Musk thought that Tesla and SpaceX had about a 10% chance of success. Wow. Yeah, and they actually shared this with their investors. They were really transparent. So I don't think you need to fool people with, you know, with overconfidence. I think being realistic is actually more helpful. Um, and to localize this a bit more, in Australia, 20% of new small businesses will fail in their first year, and up to 60% will not survive beyond five years of launching. Now, what we're talking about there, that the interesting statistics, aren't they? And those reveal to us what's called the base rate. Mm. So often people, when they are considering and evaluating and forecasting what's going to happen, ignore the base rate. It's a common fallacy. And it's because we all like to think we're exceptional. You know, the averages don't apply to us. Uh, we are exceptional, Ken. We're, <laughs> we're better than the average podcasters, yeah, for sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I'd like to think that's true. But it reminds me, I don't know if you've ever heard of Garrison Keylor and the Prairie Home Companion. I haven't. It's a really funny uh, radio show about a fictional town in America called Lake Wobegon. And it opens up with this statement, Lake Wobegon, where all the children are above average. And it just reflects that fact that we none of us like to think of ourselves as average. Yeah, but we are, at least in some aspects of our life, yeah. we're average or possibly even below average. Yeah, I'm afraid yeah. that's true. <laughs> Listen, when I was chatting with, with Lachlan as well, I challenged the concept of intuition. And that's it seems a little contradictory, but I like playing devil's advocate uh, because we talked about it in our previous discussion where we chatted with uh, John O'Holmes, the paramedic. Um, and John O talked about the value of intuition in the context of paramedicine. But in other contexts, my belief was that our intuition could mislead us. And Lachlan strongly agreed. And he really said, look, we need to have accurate data to make good decisions and not just kind of go with the vibe. Yeah, particularly in something like buying property, which is such an emotional uh, process, isn't it? Like you're often when you're looking at a house, you're thinking I could live there or that will be the kid's bedroom or I can imagine having dinner parties. Yeah. And real estate agents are cunning in this way. (laughs) Like you'll go in there and there'll be the smell of baking bread and everything looks looks lovely and they fresh cut flowers exactly and, yeah. yeah that's right so we you absolutely right we imagine the future that mm. we would like to have and they help us to imagine it mm. by creating these senses yeah they're sensory. taking us out of our critical uh, mindset aren't they yeah. and putting us more in that sort of emotional mindset that's right yeah. and that's different parts of our brain i'm sure we've talked about that before and we'll talk about it again but you know that limbic system of our brain with the emotional response to things as opposed to the frontal lobes the part of our brain that really kicks in and starts evaluating and thinking critically. And that was another thing that we talked about, the impact that our emotions can have on our decision making. And Lachlan made, I think, a really good point. He said, we need to recognize 
and acknowledge our emotions, but then make sure that we've got the data to support the decision. Okay, maybe it aligns with what we're feeling, but let's make sure that the data backs it up. So taking that time away, and it it might even be just five minutes he'd suggested that, and that allows that different part of our brain to kick in and support our decision-making. So, And fascinatingly enough, when we're younger, uh, that part of our brain is not fully developed. They say it's probably not until your mid-20s that the frontal lobe is really fully developed. So when you look at some of the poor decisions that we make in our youth, there's a physiological explanation Mm. for it as well. So maybe not the best time to consider what to spend your long-term money on when you're 19. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wait five minutes or five years. (laughs) (laughs) We also talk about confirmation bias uh, as well, a a central topic in in Julia Galef's book. It's easy to just look for information that supports what we already believe, that soldier mindset. I'll find things to prove to you that I'm right. She talks a lot about that in the Scout Mindset book and this idea of really interrogating both the supporting and the detracting information. And in a house situation, that could be not just looking up news articles that say, yes, the market's booming, invest now. You have to really look at, okay, who's writing this? Is it to sell papers? What's the story? What's the data? And then look on the other side too. So you have to kind of provide the same level of detail to really analyzing both sides of the argument. Yeah. And I we heard Lachlan say that, you know, sometimes they might spend hours researching a property and preparing a proposal for a client only to discover right near the end of that process, or oh, there's something that makes this not such a great option. Mm. And uh, I was impressed by his integrity. And Lachlan is not a sponsor of the show, I should add. He's very welcome, though. He's very welcome. Yeah, Lachlan, <laughs> contact me. Um, but, you know, that element of integrity to say, okay, well, I found something here that challenges what I thought was true. So I'm willing to act accordingly. And he uses a term that I that has lodged in my brain. I thought it was very impressive. The idea of having the mental authority over yourself to focus on the facts and make a good decision. Tess, what are your key takeaways from this show? Look, I think the, what we've just been talking about, this idea that you really need to tune into your emotions and acknowledge the impact that they can actually have on your decision making. Uh, while they're useful indicators, they can also be really misleading and they can hijack the rational part of your brain. You know, and like you talked about, if you're 18 years old and trying to make this decision, you might, your brain <laughs> might actually not be developed enough to, to make that really informed Um, choice. So I think for me, it's really about focusing um, on objective rather than subjective sources. So not not focusing as much on how you feel about it and visualizing your future in this property, but thinking about, okay, what's the objective information that actually should be driving my decision making? Yeah, excellent. And and that was very much the same for me, gathering that good data to support your big decisions, acknowledging things like the Dunning-Kruger effect, the confirmation bias, some of those thinking flaws that we're all susceptible to, and having that mental authority, I'll use that Lachlan's phrase again, that mental authority over ourselves to accept the unwelcome facts and make the better decision. I thought that was really good. Well, thanks so much for joining us for today's episode. Tess, who are we listening to next time? So next episode, we're actually going to be talking to an artist. Oh. Yeah, so a very different approach to decision-making to the last uh, few episodes. She was a photographer primarily. Uh, She lives in New York, but she's branching out into all other areas. And it's just quite interesting to see how how, how her career has evolved and the decision-making points she's taken along the way. Sounds fascinating. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to How to Choose and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au. And tell your friends about us. We'd love to meet them too. Bye for now.